Scripture lesson this morning, Exodus chapter 12, verses 29 through 51. Now it came about at midnight that Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt. For there was no home where there was not someone dead. Then he called for Moses and Aaron at night and said, Rise up, get out from among my people, both you and the sons of Israel, and go, worship Yahweh as you have said. Take both your flocks and your herds as you have said, and go, and bless me also. And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, We shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bowls bound up in the clothes on their shoulders. Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." Now the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot, about 600,000 men on foot, aside from children. And a mixed multitude also went up with them, along with flocks and herds, a very large, a very large number of livestock. And they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread. For it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. Now the time that the sons of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. And it came about at the end of 430 years to the very day that all the hosts of Yahweh went out from the land of Egypt. It is a night to be observed for Yahweh for having brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for Yahweh to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. But every man's slave purchased with money, after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. It is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. But if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover to Yahweh, let all his males be circumcised, and then let him come near to celebrate it. And he shall be like a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person may eat of it. The same law shall apply to the native as to the stranger who sojourns among you. Then all the sons of Israel did so. They did just as Yahweh had commanded Moses and Aaron. And it came about on that same day that Yahweh brought the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we again thank you for your word and for the story and the stories that it tells. And we thank you for this story of the Exodus this day that we might understand it more fully 
that we might see Christ in it and that we might also see our calling more clearly that you have placed upon us as those you have redeemed, as those you have rescued from sin and death. Direct us now with the help of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Having just heard the text read for this morning, I'm tempted to take a poll around the room or ask for a show of hands of anyone who's a little bit disappointed that the tenth plague in Exodus, well, they don't seem to get very much direct focus or detail. Maybe that's a slightly unfair characterization, but when you think about how the story has been building and building and building since chapter 1, and especially since Moses' encounter with Yahweh at the burning bush at Sinai in chapter 3, when he was called to lead Israel out of Egypt, or even since chapter 7 when the cycles of the plagues began, well, not much attention seems to be given to this final decisive plague and Israel's departure. I can remember some years ago a friend uh, commenting on how the, the final two Harry Potter movies, uh, which, which covered the seventh book of the series, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, it had, so these movies had this, this grand operatic feel to them, only to culminate in Harry snapping a wand in half and tossing, it, tossing the pieces over a precipice. And, and she mentioned that that just as being a bit of a letdown, and it wasn't in keeping with the original story anyway, so sorry for the spoiler. But, but so there was all of this drama, all of this action, all of this build up, and then snap and chuck, and that was the culmination of it all. Well, maybe this final section of Exodus 12 feels a little bit like that. You know, when you stop and look at it, there's more attention given to information that we probably don't find as interesting or necessary than other juicier details that we might prefer. You know, verse 30 leaves quite a few unanswered questions that we might think the Holy Spirit should have inspired Moses to record, and yet he didn't. And so the text that's before us is the one we're supposed to have, of course. So try not to be too disappointed. And I trust that as we make our way through the text, we'll grow in our appreciation for what is here and the implications it has for our faith and the instruction it provides uh, us in our identity and calling as believers as the church. You know, recall that the first 28 verses of chapter 12 are given uh, to the instruction for the Passover, which is freighted with significant imagery and symbolism pointing forward to Christ. We find some further instructions regarding the Passover in verses 43 to 49 of our text this morning, acting as somewhat of a summary, which we'll consider later on. But then notice also the similar wording of verses 28 and 50. Verse 28 takes on a chiastic form. They went and did, the sons of Israel, as Yahweh commanded, Moses and Aaron, so they did. Verse 50 is nearly identical. And they did, all the sons of Israel, as commanded Yahweh, Moses and Aaron, so they did. So Israel obeyed in preparing for the Passover, as in verse 28, as it indicates, and then they obeyed in keeping the Passover, as verse 50 informs us. Well, then what happens in between? Verse 29. And it was midnight, and Yahweh struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, the one sitting upon his throne, unto the firstborn of the captive who was in the house of the pit, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So when does Yahweh strike? Well, at midnight, in the middle of the night. And what we have here is the fulfillment of what Yahweh promised in chapter 11, as nearly word for word what we read there, particularly in verse 5. 
And Moses said, Thus says Yahweh, About midnight I will go forth in the midst of Egypt, and will die all firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, the one sitting upon his throne, unto the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the handmills, and all the firstborn of cattle. Now, perhaps you can hear the slight difference between the mention of the maidservant in chapter 11 and the captive or prisoner here in chapter 12. Why the change in the text? Don't know, but both express the contrast between the high station in the land in Pharaoh and the lowest, a maidservant or prisoner, so that no class of Egyptian will be exempted. And when have you heard before of a pit or cistern functioning or referred to as a prison? Well, the only other occasions so far in the Bible are back in Genesis in reference to the experience of Joseph, whether in the pit or cistern in which his brothers placed him, or the pit, the jail, where he went after being falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. So even a prisoner with a firstborn son experienced this final plague. The firstborn of the cattle were included. Why? Well, because, again, they're representative of people. And their death also brings further devastation upon Egypt, who lost cattle in the seventh plague, the plague of hail, as well. Also, though it feels like a a long time ago, the, the tenth plague taking place in the middle of the night corresponds to the ninth plague, the plague of darkness, which had likely taken place the previous three days, on the 11th through 13th of Nisan with Passover taking place on the 14th. So after undergoing darkness, it's then at the darkest point of night that Yahweh strikes the final blow against Egypt. And recall, there's an eye-for-eye imagery involved in this, for as Pharaoh and Egypt attacked Israel's sons, now Yahweh is attacking Egypt's. And we should understand that the age of the sons wasn't strictly limited to the age of children, but could also have included some firstborn who would have been considered adults. Strictly speaking, an argument could be made for all firstborn regardless of age, but I'm inclined to think that while the firstborn could include any age, it would have been firstborn sons who were not yet fathers themselves. Verse 30, And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And it was a great outcry in Egypt, for there was not a house in which there was not one having died. Chapter 11 also mentions this great outcry. But if we stop and think about it, this verse, it it almost raises more questions than it answers. First of all, think of it this way. If these sons died in the night, you know, while everyone's asleep, then the most natural natural reading of the text would be that they, they woke up the next morning, found their dead sons, and then there was this great outcry. But that's not what we read. Rather, the text explicitly tells us that Pharaoh rose up in the night along with his servants and all of Egypt. That begs the question, what caused them to wake up? Well, we're not told. The death of the firstborn is referred to as the tenth plague. Uh, But did that mean they were struck by some kind of illness and died? Did a pestilence cause them to scream out in pain in the night, waking other family members, which then led to them watching them die? It's very possible. Or was it that when Yahweh passed through the land that he wasn't quiet about it when he struck down the Egyptian firstborn? Psalm 78, part of which is taken up in poetically recounting the plagues upon Egypt and the Exodus. In verse 49, it makes reference to a company of destroying angels. Well, it could be that we're to envision, that's what we're to envision here, and they they weren't quiet about their invasion. 
Regardless, all of Egypt was up in the middle of the night. Not a single household was unaffected by death. And then what do we read in verses 31 to 32? And he, Pharaoh, called to Moses and to Aaron by night. And he said, rise up and go forth from the midst of my people. Also you and also the sons of Israel. And go, serve Yahweh as you have said. Also your flocks, also your herds, take as you have said. And go and bless me also. Note a few details. The summons of Moses and Aaron by Pharaoh is by night. It's still nighttime, giving you a sense of immediacy of, on Pharaoh's part. It's debated whether or not Moses and Aaron appeared before Pharaoh or not, or if he just sent messengers, given the exchange between Pharaoh and Moses at the end of chapter 10, when Pharaoh threatens Moses with death upon seeing his face again, and Moses declaring, I will not see your face again. And the, the verb means call, which inclines me to think it was in person, but it could very well be that they didn't appear fully before Pharaoh. Regardless, the message for Israel to leave is conveyed. And for the first time in Exodus, Pharaoh calls the Hebrews the sons of Israel. See, he hadn't used that specific title for them, and perhaps intentionally so, not recognizing them as a people, as a nation, because he's acted as if they belong to him. But at last he does. And also notice that Pharaoh makes concessions for which Moses didn't originally request. They wanted to go for three days, but it's clear that Pharaoh is expelling them completely. And the king of Egypt expresses that he doesn't want the Israelites in the midst of his people. And he gives these imperatives, these commands, as though he's still the one in charge, but he's clearly defeated. And there's also an element of irony in these verses. So the last time that Pharaoh said, go serve, was in chapter 5 and verse 18 in relation to the Israelites making bricks. And as far as he was concerned, the sons of Israel belonged to him. They were his slaves. But now he's conceding that Yahweh is their master and they're to go and serve him. And even in relation to the ninth plague, the darkness, when Pharaoh conceded the children could go but not the livestock, now he's conceding the livestock as well. The request for blessing at the end of verse 32 might seem odd or even pathetic on Pharaoh's part. Perhaps it reminds us of his past request to Moses to intercede in the midst of the plagues and maybe conveying a request that nothing else befall him or Egypt. It's also interesting to consider this request in light of Genesis 47, when Jacob blesses the Pharaoh in Joseph's day, creating a stark contrast. You know, one Pharaoh is blessed, having submitted to God's word from God's man, and the other requests blessing, having rebelled against God's word and God's man. Arguably another admission of his defeat at the acts of Yahweh. But then there's even more irony in verse 33, even though it's not surprising. And strengthened the Egyptians unto the people to make haste to send them from the land, for they said, all of us are dying. Now, the word I'm rendering strengthened, that English translations convey as some form of urging. Well, it's the same word used on uh, multiple occasions before of Pharaoh's heart being strengthened or hardened not to send out the people. So now the irony is clear. Pharaoh was strengthened not to send out Israel, but now Egypt is strengthened to send out Israel as quickly as possible. As far as the Egyptians are concerned, they're dead men walking. Or as long as Israel's there, they're as good as dead. So if they have any hope of survival, Israel must go. Verses 34 to 36. And the people lifted up their unleavened dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their garments unto their shoulders or their backs. 
And the sons of Israel did as Moses spoke, and they asked from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and garments. And Yahweh gave favor to the people in the eyes of the Egyptians, and they gave to them on request, and they plundered the Egyptians. Now, there's some debate about the timing of the request of the Israelites to the Egyptians and then uh, and, and them subsequently giving the Israelites silver, gold, and garments. It's quite possible that the Israelites made the request before the final plague, and plenty of English translations reflect that in the verb tense used. It may also be further conveyed in the fact that the same word is used in verses 34 and 35 for the garments upon the Israelites' shoulders or backs and the garments given to them by the Egyptians. And I think we're to imagine these garments kind of rolled up in bundles and, and bound on their shoulders or on their backs, you know, somewhat like backpacks with articles of silver and gold then wrapped in them. And then, and then the kneading bowls and so forth. And, and the language of plundering the Egyptians, of despoiling Egypt is clear. And what's that a sign of? Well, it's a sign of warfare. See, victors plunder the dead and defeated. And that's what Israel is doing, even though they haven't lifted a finger in combat. Yahweh has fought for them. He's the one who conquers his enemies, who are also the enemies of his people. You know, and this is a theme we noted in our study of the Exodus imagery in Genesis, which also appears on plenty of occasions after Exodus, where God's people become richer after oppression, after enduring the tyrant, and he's defeated. By way of example, recall when the Ark of the Covenant went into captivity in Philistia in the early chapters of Samuel. After bringing plagues and death to the five principal cities of the Philistines, what did they do? Well, they sent the ark back to Israel laden with gold mice, golden mice and, and golden tumors. In other words, the ark, Yahweh, came back richer than before. He plundered the Philistines. And don't forget to whom are the Philistines related? The Egyptians. As you read your Bible, be on the lookout for these themes, for these patterns. But then notice another detail that the Holy Spirit makes a point of including, which we might not think is all that important, and yet, here it is. You know, why use up ink and space on telling us about the unleavened dough and their kneading bowls being bound up in their garments as part of their travel packs? Of course, there's the practicality of it. And what we read of the Israelites eating uh, unleavened bread in verse 39. But, but the imagery seems so intentional and our consideration of the significance of unleavened bread in the instructions given in relation to Passover early in chapter 12 can hardly be ignored. So what's the imagery here? Well, it's hard to know for sure, but what can leaven represent in Scripture? Well, according to Jesus, it can represent teaching or ideas, even as we read in his warning to the disciples about the scribes and Pharisees. What can bread represent? Well, to a certain degree, work and technology and particularly the fruit of labor. You know, it takes work and technology to make bread. You need to plant the grain and then harvest it, and then you, you grind the grain and you bake it, etc. And of course, nowadays this is lost on us a bit because we just buy flour from the store or the bread already made, though that money represents your work, but you get the idea. So perhaps what we're to see then is that Israel's calling to rule and subdue the earth the call to work remains the same and it's even perfectly acceptable for them to take with them the goods and technology of Egypt to the promised land. But that they need to leave the Egyptian false religion, worship and ideas behind. See, work is about transformation, even transforming the world. 
We take certain things and we make them into something they couldn't be on their own. And that's all part of our calling as believers, as men, women, and children made in the image of God. So perhaps this underlies Israel's calling and identity as God's people, which they take with them out of Egypt and will even put to use when constructing the tabernacle from these very spoils of war. Verses 37 to 38. And the sons of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot as 600,000 on foot, the mighty men, besides little ones. And also a mixed many ascended with them, and flocks and herds and cattle great exceedingly much. Now, Ramses was likely the capital city at the time, and that's Israel's starting point. And they traveled southeast to Sukkot, which is not to be confused with the Sukkot to which Jacob travels and builds a home in Genesis 33. And I think we're to take the 600,000 uh, mighty men, warriors, at face value. And the total number that were part of the Exodus far exceeded this, of course, then, with some estimates coming in, some estimates coming in around 2 million. But who else is speci- specifically mentioned? Well, the children, the little ones. Why? Well, because previously Pharaoh wanted Israel to leave their children behind. Some of the English translations add women to the text, but they aren't explicitly mentioned in the text, even though, of course, they were part of the Exodus. Also, there's the mixed multitude, the mixed many, which means non-Israelites, whether Egyptians or those from other nations who were in Egypt at the time and decided to leave with Israel. And their presence is a subtle message that the salvation of the nations has always been in view. You know, this is a Pentecost preview, so to speak and a subtle confirmation of Israel's calling as the light to the nations. Then in verse 39 we read, And they baked the unleavened dough which they had brought forth from Egypt, cakes unleavened, for they were not to be leavened, for they were driven out from Egypt, and they were not able to linger, and also provision they could not make for themselves. So this conveys that they didn't have any other food or provisions besides the unleavened bread. They, they didn't have any time to collect them. They didn't linger tarry, and why not? Well, because Israel was driven out by the Egyptians. You know, you're given this clear image uh, of the Egyptians forcibly ejecting Israel from the land or, or pushing them out. Perhaps even how you might imagine a shepherd driving his sheep in a particular direction or cowboys moving cattle or horses. Also, part of what may be conveyed here is that Israel traveled a day from Ramses to Sukkot and their meal at Sukkot was unleavened bread because that's, that's all they had. Next, in verses 40 to 42, we're given some chronological information and then some further theological background for keeping the Passover. In the time of dwelling of the sons of Israel, which they dwelled in Egypt, 30 years and 400 years. And it was from the end of the 30 years and 400 years. And it was in this very day that went out all the hosts of Yahweh from the land of Egypt. A night of vigil it was to Yahweh to cause to go out from the land of Egypt, a night, this one to Yahweh, a night of vigil to all the sons of Israel, to their generations. So the 430 years referenced in verses 40 and 41 is probably best to be understood as beginning when Abram went to Canaan in Genesis 12 and not when Jacob went to Egypt in Genesis 47. We arrive at this conclusion based on what Paul teaches in Galatians 3.17 and it seems to make the best sense of any subsequent generational or chronological studies. What's more, Canaan existed in Egypt's shadow, so to speak. Canaan and the Philistines were under Egypt's hegemony. And so for Abram to go to Canaan was indirectly his going to Egypt. 
Still more, Abram himself goes to Egypt later in chapter 12, a story we've covered before. And then verse 42 establishes the Passover as a night to Yahweh. So the language seems to convey he kept watch, he kept vigil, vigil, which led to judgment upon Israel's enemies and deliverance for the sons of Israel. And so now they keep vigil. They remember this event, this night to Yahweh throughout their generations. Well, that brings us to verses 43 to 49. And in light of all that's taken place, we might wonder why there are these instructions given about who or may, who or who may not participate in Passover. Well, Israel went out with a mixed multitude. There's a sense um, that they participated in the first Passover, but not all of them will necessarily be qualified to keep the festival in the future. And these verses delineate who is allowed to celebrate Passover and who is not. And, and to boil it down, the, the singular qualification for participating in Passover is circumcision, which means there's a measure of exclusivity when it comes to this feast. Let's note a few points. Verse 43, And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, This is a statue of the Passover. All the sons of a foreigner shall not eat of it. Which is basically to say, someone who is born a foreigner may not eat of it. Verse 44, And every slave, a man from a purchase of silver, and you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. So what's the qualification again? Circumcision. So in the event a slave was purchased and he was circumcised, he could participate. Verse 45, A sojourner, stranger, and hired one may not eat of it. So we're back to prohibition again. And this would be someone just passing through or someone who's been hired for work, you know, someone from another country who is in Israel doing work, and they're not allowed to participate. And then in verses 46 to 47, we have a summary which echoes some of the earlier instructions in the chapter. In one house it shall be eaten. You shall not cause to go forth from the house from the flesh outside, and bones you shall not break in it. All the congregation of Israel shall do it. Now, this reminds us of the instruction to eat the Passover in the home and, um, and nothing of the meal is to be taken out of the house. It all stays in the house, which is reminiscent of Yahweh's command for them to remain in their houses when he passed over. One new detail that is given is that no bones are to be broken. That's probably implied in what was uh, mentioned earlier about cooking the whole of the, the sacrifice, but it's not explicitly mentioned until here. Well, when is that fulfilled? Well, John's account of the crucifixion in John 19, where we read, Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. So yet again, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, the great Passover lamb, the greater Passover lamb. And neither were his bones broken. This is why it's also more appropriate to say at the distribution of the bread that Christ's body is given for you rather than it's broken for you. Also notice the reference to Israel's corporate worshiping identity in verse 47 as the congregation of Israel. And all of them are to do it. Verse 48 reiterates the requirement. And when sojourns with you a sojourner, and he would keep Passover to Yahweh, 
Be circumcised to him, all males, and then he may draw near to do it. And he will be as a native of the land, but all uncircumcised shall not eat of it. Again, circumcision is the requirement for all the males in his household, it seems, and then he will be as a native of the land. And yet again, that points forward to when Israel will possess the land of Canaan, they will have a homeland, a land in which their children will be born. Verse 49. One law, one Torah, it will be for the native and for the sojourner, the one sojourning in your midst. So there's, there's no partiality here. There's one law, one Torah. The same law applies. There's no favoritism. We considered verse 40 at the outset and how it echoes verse 28. But all the sons of Israel did as commanded. And then finally, verse 51, which may also act as a transition verse into chapter 13, but is a fitting conclusion to chapter 12. And it was on that very day, Yahweh caused to go out the sons of Israel out of the land of Egypt according to their hosts. That very day, perhaps a reference to the day that Abram received Yahweh's promise in Genesis 12:7. But this is the day that Yahweh brought about Israel's going out, their exodus from Egypt. And in what manner are the sons of Israel referred? How did they go out? According to their hosts, according to their armies. Same word was used uh, back earlier in verse 43, which echoes what we're hearing again in verse 51. So part of the picture of Israel uh, leaving is, is leaving as a victorious army, having plundered the Egyptians without ever having to lift a sword, throw a spear, shoot an arrow, or sling a stone. Well, what are a few further implications for us from the text this morning? Well, let's consider that there's a sense that the dominion mandate, man's threefold calling expressed to Adam and Eve as made in the image of God, which entails being light bearers and forming and filling the earth, that these are implicitly present in relation to Israel, and are also true of God's people today, of us. You know, Israel is called to be a light to the nations, and we are likewise to be lights. The church is the light of the world. Israel was to form the world, even as expressed in the call to its transformation, which is part of the theology of bread we considered earlier. But let's think on this a little bit more. We, we transform the world through the work we perform, through the work that we do as unto the Lord. We take basic elements and then make them more glorious. You know, a few simple ingredients by themselves aren't necessarily much um, in and of themselves, but combine them together and when you make bread or you make cake or you make donuts, these things are getting more and more glorious all the time. Then you, then you can make pizza. Or we take a tree and we turn it into paper and then you put that piece of paper into the hands of an artist, whether with pencils, pens, or paints, and that piece of paper is transformed into a work of art. And in this is also an implicit approval of technology, the tools required to bring about transformation. Now, the filling aspect is echoed in the keeping of the Passover to generations, that we will train our children in the saving acts of God and what He's done in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is their Savior and King. And how is it that we, along with our children, have access to Christ, that that we can draw near and be guests at His table? By virtue of baptism, which is the right required for us to partake of Christ, our Passover lamb. Still more, it's the single law, the singular gospel of Christ that directs us and that also commands believers and unbelievers alike. 
The same law, the law of Christ applies. All men, women, and children are to obey the law of the gospel in submission to Christ as king. And as believers, as those who are part of the congregation, the worshiping community of God's people, we recognize what God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have accomplished. The redemption that is ours, the exodus that has been achieved, the salvation that has been achieved for us, and it was not of our doing, but sheerly the gift of God. Christ has won the victory. He kept watching Gethsemane. He endured the midnight of the cross for us as our Passover lamb. His blood covers us, and He's the one who still fights for us. And that being true, then we're free to live in this world and give ourselves to the work of its further transformation. You know, it's His world. Uh, It all belongs to Jesus. He rules it. He's the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And so the church goes and makes disciples and baptizes and teaches obedience unto Christ. And perhaps one further implication of our text is that, well, we're called to stay put um, and be about our business of worship and work and not feel as though we need to be the ones who leave, but make the tyrants drive us out. And this isn't an absolute statement, I, I realize that, but it's still worth thinking about. You know, separatism, as it has sometimes been defined and expressed in the history of the church, shouldn't be our modus operandi. Granted, we are to keep ourselves unstained by the world, even as James exhorts his hearers, but we are to be in the world. And of course, we aren't to take with us the leaven of the world, the false gods, ideas, and religions, but we plunder the nations to the glory of God. We participate in the redeeming and transforming work of the world for which we've been given the Holy Spirit who strengthens us for these very tasks. Well, if you were disappointed with the rendering of the tenth plague in the Exodus, I trust that's no longer the case. And one final point worth considering that underlies not only this text, but arguably arguably all of chapter 12 is the Lord's emphasis throughout. What does He seem to spend quite a bit of time conveying that we might not expect? how the Passover is to be kept in the future. In other words, Yahweh seems almost more occupied with establishing the liturgical life of Israel than recounting details about the Exodus, the logistics of it, etc., that we might prefer. Israel, Israel is to remember and celebrate the night to Yahweh, the night when He saved them, delivered them from slavery and bondage in Egypt, from Pharaoh the tyrant, and brought them out richer than they were before, by His power and might. Likewise, week after week, we come to celebrate the victory that is ours in Jesus, the great salvation that is ours over Satan, sin, and death, by the sheer grace of God, that in His might and power, the enemies are defeated. And this is for the encouragement of our faith. And so that we never forget or lose heart, which we're sometimes prone to do. And so that we might be renewed for the life and service to which we're called in this world to the glory of Christ, our Savior and King. This day, this very day, the first day of the week, Christ rose triumphant over the grave. And so let us give ourselves to this festival, to this feast that is the worship service. And then let us go forth to the coming week, taking up our work and whatever that entails, confident of His accomplished work, which gives purpose and meaning to ours. Let us pray. 
Our Father and our God, we again thank you for the richness of the scriptures, for the story that you are telling and continue to tell to us that you would impress upon our hearts and lives for the images that are here and that we can take with us in our own lives. Indeed, continue to direct us in the truth. May your spirit help us and strengthen us. And may we continue to find encouragement and hope and and joy and celebration in your presence. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.